0: In anticipation of this morning's message, I, I noticed a, a story in the news this past week. Maybe you saw on Instagram, The Rock Dwayne Johnson, the, uh, the actor, former, uh, former professional, I guess you call it professional wrestler. I don't know. It seems like a little bit of an oxymoron, but he went to a 7-Eleven in Hawaii, where he's from. And uh, where he grew up, and he bought all the Snicker bars at this particular 7-Eleven. Maybe, again, you heard the story. And he gave them to the cashier and instructed him to give them, basically, to anybody who wanted them. Because as a kid, when he was younger, growing up for years, he would go in and he would steal a king-size Snicker bar. And when I think about the size of the rock, I imagine probably nobody said anything, but he felt bad about it and was trying to make amends. And I've read similar stories along those lines. Maybe you've uh, heard them as well. People trying to right wrongs, to, to make amends. Even years and decades after the fact... In 2014, a 73-year-old Bernard Schirmerhorn mailed a $200 check to The Ledger, a local newspaper in the town where he grew up, because he and a friend 54 years earlier stole six newsstands to get the change out. And so he wanted to try to make it up to them and enclosed a note explaining what he was doing. I heard once of a man who wrestled with guilt over stealing from the register at the hardware store where he worked for many, many years. Well, it finally bothered him so much that he sat down and calculated approximately how much he'd stolen over the years, and it was a pretty big number. So the man went to the bank, withdrew the cash, and, and carefully secured it in an envelope and mailed it to his employer and included a note with the following uh, uh, uh explanation. He said, I felt so bad over the years for the money that I took, so please accept this check. And then he went on to write, if I still feel bad after this, I'll send the rest. (laughs) (laughs) While we're looking at Israel today, I want to remind us that our series, it's entitled Lessons from the Kingdom for Today. There's application here for you and I, and I pray that we have the sensitivity to appreciate and receive that from the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, when, uh, when seeing the Pharisees and the religious leaders coming to be baptized by him, he, he knew, he could discern that they were, they were kind of only looking to make a show, and, and he challenged those that were given to playing the part and looking good on the outside, he said to them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. That, that public act of baptism needed to agree with an inward reality that was evidenced by real outward change. Jesus likewise taught in Matthew seven twenty, by their fruits, you will know them. And likewise, you and I will be known by our fruits. Real and measurable change is the evidence we can and should expect in the lives of others who are following Christ. But also, we should find in ourselves when God is at work in us. We should be able to to see that in our own lives. No real change, a lack of fruit that agrees with a new direction, that's a warning sign. It should be to any of us. Well this morning's message is titled How's Your Fruit? And and so the idea is that we would maybe consider the fruit, what's being born and produced from our own lives and whether or not it agrees with the kind of change that God wants to bring about that needs to happen in our lives. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 17 and As we examine true repentance in Israel's life as a nation, which we'll we'll see kind of a sampling of today, we'll have the opportunity to consider our own lives as well. Last week, if you were with us, we worked through two chapters and, and followed the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, as the Philistines moved it from city to city, you'll remember, attempting to determine whether or not the plagues that they were enduring uh, were coincidental or, if, in fact, the God of the Ark was judging them for having Uh, taken that ark and uh, placed it in their pagan temple and then kept it in their territory. Of course, it was God's judgment. Well, the ark was finally returned by the Philistines and it made it safely back to the territory of Israel. The priests led in sacrifice and worship and all was well at first. But at some point, a group of Jews... Uh, managed to let their curiosity get the better of them. They handled the Ark of the Covenant. They removed the mercy seat, the lid, and they looked inside, and they were all judged by God, those that participated in that, and were killed. No one except the priest, of course, uh, was to interact with the Ark, and only the high priest, once a year, and and that through the blood of the sacrifice. So the the people there in that city, Beth Shemesh, was where it took place, Uh, They they had committed a gross transgression. They determined after that that the ark needed to keep moving along. They didn't want to keep it in their city after that. And so it was determined it would go to the next city, which is Kirjath-Jerim. And that's where we pick up today. So let's pray before we look at our first section of verses. Father, as we open your word this morning, we're asking, we're praying that, God, you would give us ears to hear those things that you would say to us by your Holy Spirit. We're praying that, God, you'd cause the soil of our hearts to be, um, God, good ground in which the seed of your word can be planted, Lord, that the work that you desire might be brought about. So please, would you meet us here this morning? And we're asking that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point this morning as we're looking at verses 1 through 6 is tears of repentance. Verse 1, Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord away from Beth and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 20 years have passed since the ark was moved from Beth Shemesh to Kirjath-Jerim, and it it actually appears to have remained there longer than that because as we move out to 2 Samuel, we find that when David moves the ark, he goes to Kirjath-Jerim to get it. So 20 years have passed from Beth Shemesh when the ark arrived up until this point to the events that we're reading about now in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 3, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts... Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the land of the Philistines, excuse me, from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 4, so the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord Only and Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. So Two decades have passed since Israel uh, was defeated on the battlefield before the Philistines. Remember, before the ark was taken, seven months before it was returned, that that was when everything started to kind of fall apart with the Philistines, right? They went out to battle up at, uh, excuse me, up at Aphek. And the Philistines overwhelmed them, defeated them. That, that was when they thought, you know, oh, well, we'll call for the ark because we're losing the battle, and they were not calling out to the Lord. And uh, the Philistines defeated them. Well, where we find Israel at this time, unfortunately, is about where they were then. Still not right with God, except that now we read that they were uh, lamenting after The Lord, it seems like he's been working in their hearts over these 20 years. Verse 2 again, So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is new in terms of their experience as a nation. That was not taking place 20 years and seven months before, certainly not on the battlefield and not in the hearts of the people We would imagine, I would imagine, in reading and understanding what we've looked at so far, that the pressure of the Philistines dominating them, occupying large areas of their land, it was all weighing on them, driving them to grieve before God. But up until this point, that lamenting, it really hadn't come full circle. There there wasn't fruits of repentance, you might say. Um, they were still tolerating and worshiping idols. They were grieving the heart of God, and, th- and that's really the most miserable place for any of us to be as children of God—to be in that spot where we're we're not fully serving the Lord, um, but but we're 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 we kind of have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We're we're trying to please God, but we're also trying to please the flesh. Living in a backslidden state, we would describe it as the proverbs speak to that pretty descriptively. Verse, uh, Proverbs chapter fourteen, verse fourteen: The backslider in heart will be filled in his with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. It's this picture and imagery that. Uh, the backslider, the one that's living in this way, not fully surrendered to the Lord, but 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 also given to sin. He's only filled up, she's only filled up with their own ways. And of course, when, when we're going after our own hearts and ways, we find great disappointment. Proverbs 26 verse 11 is even better. Uh, this one will stick with you for the day. As a dog returns to its own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. That's the picture and imagery there. The, the, the backslider, they're filled up with their own ways because they keep going after it, no matter how disgusting it is, and re-ingesting it, thinking it's going to satisfy, thinking it's going to bring fulfillment, and yet all it does is create this vicious cycle that brings pain and disappointment. Again, it's a miserable place for the child of God to be. And it's exactly where Israel was as a nation. They were wallowing in their own refuse, if we could say it that way, suffering the consequences of choosing sin over God's best. But now they're lamenting. Lamenting is key to repentance, to renewal and revival. Without this humility and awareness of sin, we can't move forward to where the Lord wants us to be, to the freedom and the liberty that he has for us, the growth and the blessing. We have to be honest about our sin. We can't pretend that it's not a problem. In verse 3, we read these words of Samuel, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, Samuel, he calls the people to repentance, to action calls them effectively to bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance. He says, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. And then in verse 4, So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Now following this, Samuel uh, called them together at this place called Mizpah where he would pray for them. It was sort of this public assembly. Everybody come together and we're going to cry out to the Lord as one. Verse 6 we read, So they gathered together at Mizpah, they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 6 speaks of the people pouring out water, and that's kind of a curious thing because we don't see it in a lot of places in the Bible in conjunction with repenting. But it's possible that what's being described here is actually two Jewish festivals. It's, it's possible that they coincided with what was happening because the Feast of, of Yom Kippur involves fasting, and then the Feast of Tabernacles would eventually involve pouring out water in part of its celebration. And the one does follow the other on the Jewish calendar. So it may be that that's what's happening here. You actually, when you look at John chapter 7, you see that um, there the priest poured out water over the steps of the temple. And and that was a part of the Feast of Tabernacle as a way of commemorating God causing uh, water to come from the rock In the wilderness. So it may be that that's what's going on. It might just be a picture of of symbolic purification by water. It could also be an an image of them saying, As this water is being poured out, our lives are poured out to you. We're really not sure. We know what they have meant, though. That part is obvious. Um, they, They say, We have sinned against the Lord. They confessed, they admitted. It really, it's, it, in some ways, their words at least, and we'll see in a moment, their actions align with biblical repentance. The idea of not only a change of mind, but a change of direction that follows. The acknowledgement really is important. It's, it's key. Where can we get with the Lord if we refuse to acknowledge that we're wrong and he's Right. That has to happen. And it's happening here for Israel. In the Bible, there are examples of both false and real repentance. And this point, uh, verses 1 through 6, remember, is tears of repentance. Because there, 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 there's tears that really are not connected to true repentance, and then there's those that are. Tears of regret in contrast to those born of real humility and brokenness over one's sin. Paul, he speaks to this, he writes clearly about it in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verse nine. He writes, now I rejoice that you were made sorry. Remember, Paul had to say some very hard things to the church in Corinth, but he was glad that they were sorry. He was glad that they, they mourned, they grieved, because it meant that they took his word seriously, the word of the Lord, and they were truly repenting. He says, I rejoice that you were made sorry, Not that you were made sorry, excuse me, but that your sorrow led to repentance. That's what he was rejoicing over. For you were made sorrow in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you! What clearing of yourselves! What indignation! What fear! What vehement desire! What zeal! What vindication! Paul says this was this was great. You were you were you were sorrowful. You were grieved, but it was the right kind of grief because what came out of it a determination, a, a passion, and a zeal and a desire to to put what God was doing in your heart into action, to to walk in obedience. And the fear of the Lord, that's what He's saying. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Paul says the, the grief of heart that you had, the sorrow, the tears of repentance. Well, well, it showed that it was real because you're now clear. You you walked away from that and you made yourself right in the eyes of the Lord. Godly sorrow produces repentance that results in diligence and desire, real. Change, an observable change in direction. Worldly sorrow may produce emotion, but results only in death, lacking any true reform. There's a lot of people that are sor- uh, they, they, they're sorrowful, they're they're sad for their circumstances. But in reality, they're just upset that they got caught and that they're having to live under those uh, consequences. But God is calling us to be a people that follow him in obedience after repentance. Now, verses 7 through 12, we move to our next point, stone of remembrance, Verse 7, "'Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, "'Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines.' And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord.' Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Beth-car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Well, the Philistines, we just read, they learned that Israel was gathering together as Miz, at Mizpah and, and, and they misinterpreted the situation and thought that they were preparing for war that they were marshalling an army together to come against them. And so they responded, and the only way that's made sense to them, they gathered their armies and moved against Mizpah. And, of course, the children of Israel see that happening, and they cry out to God for mercy and protection because they were not prepared for a battle, and nor were they interested in fighting a war at this time. So in terror and in fear, they humble themselves, uh, before God. They've already humbled themselves before him and they're already crying out to him for mercy. And so they become that much more passionate about it. Now they, they beg to Samuel, they beg to Samuel to consider interceding to continue, excuse me, interceding for them. Verse 8 Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Here they've come together at Mizpah, they're crying out to the Lord, and they're thinking, man, here we are seeking God, and we're trying to repent, and now our enemies come against us, and that, that's, that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Anybody experienced that before? You try to get right with the Lord, you start seeking Him, and then all of a sudden the bottom falls out. Things start going wrong. You know, the enemy very often, he wants to discourage us, and he wants to, in our mind, try to draw a connection between serving the Lord and, uh, and, and trials and difficulty. And, and there are legitimate connections between the two. But the reality is that what we see here is God meeting Israel in this place and delivering them. And that's another connection that we shouldn't miss. It's a good sign what we see here and how Israel's reacting. Rather than repeat the mistakes that they'd lived out before when they were on the battlefield. Rather than lean into empty religion, rather than looking for something that represented God, that they could identify more as an idol, they actually cry out to God himself in humility and dependence. Israel chooses to place their faith and trust in God. We mentioned this a couple of weeks back that God had given Israel instruction in the law for times when they faced an enemy that was greater than their own. In fact, the priest was to come before the people and to speak. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 3, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. And I love verse 4. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. I think that's a verse we need to write out and put on our refrigerators or, or on our, our desktop uh, or, or screen as a screensaver or, um, or tattoo if you're looking to do something this afternoon. It's a great verse of encouragement about God's faithful to us in difficult times, in trials. Your God the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. God will fight for us. Years later from from this time in Israel's history the the Lord would speak to the nation and their king through a prophetic voice when they were again facing multiple enemies in 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 verse 15 we looked at this passage just a couple weeks back on uh, our at our Wednesday night Old Testament study. Listen, all of you, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, who was the king at the time, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. That's another great verse to write down and remember in those times when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like... Where is God? How am I going to navigate this trial? How am I going to navigate this difficulty? Well, I tell you what, there's a confidence that we can have that's found in these two verses. I'll I'll say scripture and promises that we can claim when we're in the same place that Israel was. When we're walking in the light before the Lord. When we're walking in humility before him. When we're walking in the truth of his word. When we're depending on him, we can rely on him with this degree, with this level of trust, God's going to fight this battle for me. The Lord is with me. Who can be against me? Israel's facing a great enemy right now. They've they, they they've already been seeking and worshiping God. They've repented of their idolatry and put away their false gods. They're making a real and earnest effort to walk in the light and to please God. God and now they ask Samuel to intercede for them, and he is after all their leader, and so on their behalf, their prophet, their their priest, and their judge cries out uh, to God with and for them. Verse nine: Samuel he took a suckling lamb, we read, a, a little uh, lamb and offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. In verse 10, now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against the Lord. I'd, I'd be getting nervous, you know, <laughs> going over to Samuel like, Samuel, you are praying, right? Pray harder because now we can see the whites of their eyes, so to speak. The enemy is getting closer. Why does, the, why does the Lord let the enemy get that close, you know? <laughs> hmm. Anyway. <sighs> But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before the Lord. This was a supernatural thunder. You ever been in a really big thunderstorm? We don't have them very often here. Once or twice over the last few years, there have been those where we've, we had, I think there was even one this year, wasn't there? Thunder and lightning. But I remember as a kid, thunderstorms back at and Empire up against the, the foothills where we lived. The storms would, would reach there and there would be these, you know, just that thunder that it almost scares you. It's so loud, the shaking the house kind of thunder. And this was that and probably a couple times beyond, loud, so loud, probably the, the, the people couldn't, the army, they couldn't communicate with one another and they they were just confused, confounded. And it, it ended up giving Israel the upper hand because however it uh, caused the Philistines to be fearful and lost in the battlefield. It did not affect Israel in the same way. And that isn't explained to us. We only know that it was so. Well, Israel was able to defeat them in this battle, driving their armies from Mizpah, where, where this uh, battle took place, all the way to Bethkar, which was to the west, And as we'll read in the next section of verses, so thorough was this victory that that in this process, Israel was actually able to reclaim some of the territories that had been taken from them by the Philistines. As Samuel sacrificed to God, as worship went up, God's deliverance came down. Deliverance came as the people repented and worshiped in humility. From a place of being in right relationship with God. Victory, blessing, and deliverance, they they flow from this place in our lives. Now, when we're walking in the light, as I mentioned before, our lives are not going to be devoid of trials. But just the same, we'll enjoy victory over and in the midst of those hardships. It reminds me of the book of Acts. There's actually a few places similar to this. But when the apostles had been ministering in Philippi, you remember this, and they, uh, were, the Lord used them to, to drive a demon out of the life of a, a young slave girl. And the people, especially her owners, who used and abused her for their own purposes, they were upset by that. So much that they had the apostles imprisoned. And we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, that at midnight... Paul and Silas, in the midst of this trial, what were they doing? They were praying and singing hymns to God. They were worshiping. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. There was deliverance in that moment as they purposed to worship and to serve and to seek God. Deliverance came. James chapter 5, verse 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, of a righteous woman avails much. Too often we view prayer as as our last line of defense. We don't really imagine worship as an offensive tool against the enemy and trials in our lives. Sometimes, some of us need to be challenged that, that in our trials and difficulties, we pull back away from the Lord and his people. But the opposite should be true. When things are not going well, we should press in. I, I should see you here more often in those cases. But Samuel wants to be sure to remember all of this, and he wants Israel to remember everything that's happened, how God's worked on their behalf, how he's delivered them from their enemies, the, the miracles that, that God has wrought in their midst. And, and he wants there to be some sort of a memorial to God's faithful deliverance. And we read in verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Merry Christmas. There you go. There's our... Christmas reference today. We're not into the Christmas message yet, but uh, Ebenezer saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Throughout the Old Testament, there there are examples of such stones of remembrance. We find them in Genesis. We find them in Joshua. And there are many of them. They were memorials raised up in the form of, of rocks, either a stone or a pile of rocks and, and they were there to remind God's people of what he had done on a particular in a particular area or place. They were to be a physical reminder, something that the people could reflect on to recall what God had done in the past. And it was also to be a point of education that when their children saw it, they would say, Why is this big pile of rocks here? And then mom and dad would use that as a moment to say, well, at this place, at this time, God did such and such. He worked and he moved in a powerful way here. We need memorials like that in our lives today to remind us of what God has done in the past, his faithfulness. Maybe you have something like that. In your life. Maybe it's something physical, maybe it's just a purposing to remember on a certain day, but reflecting on what God has done. Because really it's a testimony of what God wants to do today and will do in the future. It's a reminder that He is good, that He is powerful, that He is able. Samuel called this particular stone Ebenezer, which means stone of help or help stone. Thus far the Lord has helped us, like the King James, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. God's been faithful up until this point, and what that tells us is, what it's a testimony to is that if he's been faithful up until this point, he's gonna finish. He's gonna get us all the way there. God who didn't spare his own son, what good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly? He's going to be faithful to complete what He's begun in our lives. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Now, finally, we'll look at verses 13 through 17, our last point, the final judge, and that is, of course, Samuel. So the Philistines, verse 13, were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territories from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. A little bit of a bonus thrown in there beyond just the Philistines. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. But to our our title of this final point, he would be the last judge, of course, followed by the the time of the kings. He went from year to year on a circuit, that is, he traveled in sort of this triangular uh, pattern from Bethel to Gilgal and Mizpah. Bethel and Mizpah, Mizpah were sort of in what we might call south-central um, Israel, kind of the south and, and center part of the nation, and Gilgal was over closer to uh, to the Jordan River. And judged Israel in all those places. So, uh, verse 17, but he always returned to Ramah. That was his home. That was where his parents lived. For his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, next week, as I mentioned, we'll turn a page in Israel's history. The nation will move from being led by judges to a monarchy that will begin with King Saul, who was the original choice that God had, through which more kings would come, but, but some of you know the story. If you don't, we'll learn it pretty quickly. But that promise would move to David. And and then, of course, from David, uh, the next king would be Solomon. And that's where we'll end 2 Samuel. The king, though, the reason Israel would move from being ruled by a judge was poorly motivated. We actually read in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19, we'll read next week that what drove the people to ask God for a king was that we also mean be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Kind of sad. <laughs> it, was a, it was a continued struggle to learn what God was trying to teach them, that he wanted to fight their battles for them, that he wanted to lead them. But uh, that would take a long time, and uh, just like us, it takes a while to learn some of the most important lessons. Their willingness to live under, under the kind of dependence on God that we find here in chapter 7, it's, it's going to be short-lived. But right now, Israel is enjoying a season of great blessing that's following uh, national repentance, turning away from sin, real trust in and worship God, and and in this place God blesses them. This is really a very a high point in Israel's life as a nation. Verse thirteen. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Now beyond this, not only were the Philistines defeated at least uh, in this particular battle, but all of the cities and territories they'd lost to them in battle were taken back by Israel during this time. Not to mention, they also enjoyed some peace with the Amorites. It was temporary, but still, it was a great time of blessing. Now, did this mean Israel never encountered any problems? No. Walking in the light, serving God faithfully, repenting and living humbly, before him, it doesn't absolve us of all of our problems, not at all. And Israel still had to fight our enemies, her enemies. She had to show up for the battle, didn't she? She had to do a lot of hard work, but God was with her and he gave her the victory. And he'll do the same for you and I, and there's work for you and I as well. I think sometimes we can misunderstand what we're talking about this morning, and envision that that repentance and seeking the Lord, that it's it's strictly an emotional experience, that it's just showing up for a, a one hour and 15 minute service on a Sunday morning and then God's gonna take care of the rest. Not so. There's cooperation to be had on our part. There's sacrifice. Those tears of, of repentance that are evidenced by fruit that's born in our lives that's in keeping with a changed heart That requires requires work in the Spirit, if I could could put it that way. That requires a submission to the Lord in His will and ways, a choosing to please Him. Verse 15 reads, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel. Israel in all those places, but he returned to Ramah for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Ramah, which was where his family was from, was actually just south of Mizpah, the city where all of this took place uh, the sacrifice and the returning to the Lord, and then the battle. With the Philistines. And so Samuel went throughout the land and he taught the law and he judged Israel and and he would prophesy and provide direction and guidance for the people of Israel. And unlike other judges that you read about in the book of Judges, Samuel, pretty much for the whole of his life, the record that we have is that he lived well and he honored the Lord until the very end, until he died. And this was a, it was a great time of blessing for Israel as a nation and a people. But as I mentioned, change is coming to Israel, as we'll see next week. Some of you will remember the words of the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's one of my favorites. It was written in 1788 by Robert Robinson. It's one of, uh, again, it's one that I love personally. In it, he actually references Ebenezer. That's not one of the choruses that are always sung, but he speaks about Ebenezer, the stone of remembrance erected by Samuel, this testimony to God's faithful help. Thus far has the Lord helped us. Maybe you remember the words. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Calvary, of course. Here I raise my Ebenezer, Robinson writes. Hither by thy help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. A Dr. Lindsay Park writes that this hymn was written by Robinson when he was only 23 years old. The honesty of the words he used would become prophetic in his life. Not only was his salvation touchingly explained, but his future episodes of straying from the Lord took expression in his words. Even then, he saw in himself that he was prone to wander, prone to leave the God he loved. And sadly, there were periods in his life when he did wander. He lapsed back into sinful ways, had periods of great spiritual instability, and even toyed with false doctrine opposed to the truth of Scripture. But one day, when he was much older, he was riding in a stagecoach, traveling through the English countryside, And the lady sitting near him in the coach was obviously enjoying a hymn she was reading. She was humming the tune and singing the words aloud. The author writes, she turned to the stranger beside her, held the hymn book out to him, and asked him if he had ever heard that hymn. The stranger was silent for a long time, and then he burst into tears. Robinson said to her, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feeling that I had then. Some 30 years later, the the very words he had penned had been returned to him by the grace and providence of God to break his heart. It would seem at the end of his life that he did return to the Lord the same God who had been faithful to him, who had helped him thus far, before whom he had raised an Ebenezer, perhaps in the form of that hymn, Come Thou Fount. The Ebenezer stone that, that he'd lifted up in the writing of that hymn was a witness to his own soul of God's faithful love, of Christ's response to true, true repentance so many years before, thus far The Lord has helped us. God wants to help you and I today. But we have to respond to him. Where's he calling you and I to repent? Where's he calling us to change? Where has sorrow in our lives only been an emotional response and and fallen short of birthing and bringing about real change and fruits of repentance? Where is he calling us to abandon some sin, some idolatry? He'll equip and empower us that we might serve and follow him when we respond to him as the children of Israel do, did, when we cry out to him in true humility and brokenness. He wants to bring about those true and lasting fruits in our lives. Why don't you stand with me as the worship team joins us and we move towards communion this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this morning's message and consider, God, the, the ways that you were working the lives of Israel as a nation, Lord, we want to humble ourselves regardless of where we're at. And we want to ask that you would speak to us. We wouldn't presume to know the full condition of our own hearts. And so we're praying that now by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us. God, that you would bring conviction and revelation. Lord, that you would show us those places where you desire change and surrender. Lord, would you do that today and as we move toward communion, the scripture challenges us to consider our own hearts and lives. That we would judge ourselves before we approach this table, before we participate in this in this meal that God has provided, that He shares with us this reminder of His great love for us at Calvary. And so I invite you right now to take a few moments to respond to the lord maybe there's places in your life where you've given lip service to change where you've you've been casual with sin but likewise casual with real confession and change Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you've kind of given up because you failed in the past. But the Bible says that God is at work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That he wants to meet us in this place right now. That when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That in in, in the blood of Jesus, the blood that was shed at Calvary when he laid down his life for us, We find forgiveness. That there is a fountain filled with blood beneath Emmanuel's veins and that sinners plunged beneath its flow lose all their guilty stains. So take a minute and and confess that sin and guilt before him and receive the forgiveness that he freely offers. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you that as far as the East is from the West, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. And we pray that you would bless, bless the bread, bless the wine. That as we take these tangible reminders of your love and your grace, that we would be encouraged in our own faith and experience of trusting you and your promises. And So we take the bread. You can do that now as we take together. You can even break it in your hands just as the disciples broke it. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless this bread now. We thank you, Jesus, that you willingly laid your life down for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, we read, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless this bread as we remember that you are the bread of life. And we receive it now in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we take this cup, this cup that represents life and forgiveness, this cup that represents restoration and healing and relationship with you, this cup that declares that our sins are forgiven, yet the price has been paid. Jesus, we thank you that in your blood there is life, and we receive that life, and we pray that you would bless this cup as we take it now in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus... We proclaim your death, remembering that in your death, we have life. And Jesus, we do that, looking forward to your soon coming, knowing that you have promised that. And then, Lord, your word will be fulfilled just as surely as every other promise God found in scripture. We ask and we pray that you would meet us here now as we we open our lips to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.